Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Brian Mason. I'm the minister of this congregation. I am delighted to be joined this morning by Donika Kozlovich and Margaret Jurs. And I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us online this morning. Since 1870, this church has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping online only, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter or follow us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram for updates. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship this hour. Please join me in reciting this church's chalice lighting if you're following along at home. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please join in singing our opening hymn this morning for the beauty of the earth.
Today's poem for all ages is Remember by Joy Harjo. Remember the sky that you were born under. Know each of the stars' stories. Remember the moon. Know who she is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn. That is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father. He is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are, red earth, black earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth. We are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life, who all have their tribes, their families, their histories, too. Talk to them. Listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind. Remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Remember you are all people, and all people are you. Remember you are this universe, and this universe is you. Remember all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember language comes from this. Remember the dance language is, that life is. Remember. I invite you now to join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. If you're sitting and listening to this at home, I encourage you to put both feet on the ground, press them down to feel the earth supporting you. Notice the seat that holds you. If you're out on a walk or a jog, take a moment to become aware of the world around you. Let us journey into silent meditation with these words. Ever surprising, ever faithful, ever merciful lover of creation, even as our hearts overflow with thanks, the tears of your people wash over and through us. We pray for those whose pain is so great that they cannot see the beauty around them or feel the love that flows from heart to heart. We pray for all who are hungry that they will have both food and love. We pray for all who thirst, that they will have both water and peace. We pray for all who mourn, that they will find both comfort and joy. Spirit of life, the cup of healing for all the world, hear our prayers for all who are in need and for ourselves. And let us bring into our minds the joys and sorrows of our lives and let us meditate on them in silence together now.
Amen. Today's reading is from John chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life.
To be human is to be on a quest. As the philosopher Blaise Pascal said, you have to wager. It's not up to you. You are already committed. All of us are headed somewhere. Ancient philosophers like to say that what human beings are moving towards is our telos, that is to say, our goal and our end. St. Augustine believed that our longings and desires shape the goals and ends of our lives. If you love the natural world, your choices will lead you outside. If you love friendship, your choices will lead you to others. This led Augustine to the the conclusion that we are what we love because each of us live toward what we want. Long before anything even close to modern science existed, Augustine theorized that love is sort of like gravity. He wrote, and I quote, A body by its weight tends to move towards its proper place. The weight's movement is not necessarily downwards, but to its appropriate position. Fire tends to move upwards, a stone downwards. Oil poured under water is drawn up to the surface of the water. Water poured on top of oil sinks. Things which are not in their intended position are restless. Once they are in their ordered position, they are at rest. The helium-filled balloon rises to the sky. The air you breathe out underwater rushes to the surface. A child reaches for a mother. My weight, Augustine wrote, is my love. Therefore, if you love material things, the things of this world, then your love will drag you downward into one of the many ways you can wreck your life in pursuit of selfish desires. But if our loves are oriented toward the fruits of the Spirit, then our weight flows upward. The trouble is, I don't see a lot of upward flow. This past week, a gunman murdered eight people blaming the victims for his own sex addiction. Journalists in Wisconsin revealed COVID deaths in the state's nursing homes were underreported to the tune of more than 1,000 people. The CDC has new data that shows parents are understandably depressed and that the nation's children are anxious and underachieving in school for no fault of their own. There's a military coup in Myanmar, and European nations are settling in for a fourth wave of an even deadlier version of the coronavirus. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here, are the words the poet Dante imagined etched over the gates of hell. Thankfully, some other anonymous poet left us the encouraging line, where there's life, there's hope. I suppose that's true in the same way it's true, that spring is here. Spring is here so long as you live in the northern hemisphere, I like to add. Elsewhere, winter's coming. Elsewhere, families in Georgia are mourning the deaths of their murdered daughters and son, and Asian Americans throughout the nation are fearful of hate crimes like the one that happened right here in Wausau just days ago. In a world with headlines like these, the age-old question Jesus asked the disciples comes to mind. What do you want? This is a most piercing question because we are what we want. We are what we love. Our wants and longings are the heart of our identities. 
The book of Proverbs says we should, above all else, guard our hearts, for everything you do flows from it. In other words, we are to train and attend to our hearts. Our faith teaches us to guard our hearts so we don't end up wanting what the world wants, but rather what God wants. But what does God want? The scriptures we inherited and even the stained glass windows in our church's sanctuary answer this question. God wants all of us to relentlessly rebuild relationships because God relentlessly pursues a relationship with us. The tricky thing is we tend to make religion a thinking thing rather than a heart thing. Our tendency is to approach religious discipleship like it's an intellectual pursuit only. We know we need to change for the better. We know we need to be better in our relationships. And so we read and we watch and we study things we hope will improve us. Education theorists call this the banking model. You deposit information and then you withdraw it later. But it doesn't work. It's a proven recipe, in fact, for failure. It doesn't work in school and it doesn't work in life. Just think back with me to the last time you read an essay or you watched a documentary movie that had an impact on you. And so you got inspired and so you said to yourself, you said, that's it, I'm going to do things differently, I'm going to buy less, I'm going to eat better, I'm going to be nicer, or whatever it was. And we've all done this. It's the season of Lent, so scores of people have been trying to curb their appetites and habits so they can focus more on God or whatever else they think will improve their living. But almost always, whenever we make a change like this, what happens? It lasts a week, maybe two, and then Amazon.com happens, McDonald's happens, mindless Facebooking happens. The reason we fail is because the gap between what we know and what we do is huge. My doctor nailed this point for me the other day at my yearly checkup. So we were talking about her patients and how people in general are doing now that the pandemic has drug on for more than a year. My doctor's life has changed. When she goes to Mass, the priest has everyone wiped down the pews and communion is served in Ziploc baggies. And when she goes home, she enters through the basement so she can throw her clothes in the wash and shower before seeing her kids and husband upstairs. And when the conversation got around to her patients, she said she's seen more drug and alcohol consumption than usual. She said alcohol consumption up here in north-central Wisconsin is high, she guesses, because the winters are harsh and long. But she said that a lot of her patients, many of whom she has known for years, are constantly counseled by her to limit their drinking, to find activities that will keep their bodies and minds healthy. In other words, her patients know what will help keep them healthy. But what do they do? This winter, she has admitted more patients into the hospital for alcohol-related issues than ever in her career as a physician. Now, nobody's blaming anyone. Addiction is a terrible disease. 
But her story underscores the fact that the gap between what we know and what we do is huge. Now I want to be clear. What I'm advocating for isn't less knowledge. If anything, we need more. But what I'm trying to emphasize is the power of habit. Because if we are what we want and love, then the only way to change who we are is to change what we want, and that will take some work. On this topic, the philosopher James Smith says we should recognize that human beings aren't simply thinking creatures. That we're just thinking creatures is a Western idea that goes back to Rene Descartes, who said famously, I think, therefore I am. And this concept reigns supreme even today. The issue isn't thinking. It's thinking that only knowledge is the best compass for our lives. The writer and Czech statesman Václav Havel wrote, and I quote, There is an enormous conflict between words, thoughts, and deeds that is prevalent today. Everyone talks about freedom, democracy, justice, human rights, about peace and saving the world, and at the same time, everyone, more or less, serves these values and ideals only to the extent necessary to serve himself and his worldly interests. So the power structures apparently have no other choice than to wait around until the final inhibition drops away. But who should begin, he asks. Who should break this vicious cycle? Responsibility cannot be preached. It can only be born. And the only possible place to begin is with oneself. So let's think about Havel's idea before we move on. Who or what in this world knows that we tend to serve our interests the most? Just think about that. Who in the world knows that we serve our own interests the most? My best guess is that it's advertisers. Is your life boring, they ask? Are your kids a mess? Do you want to be prettier or more handsome? Are you fat? Is your chin too small and your waist too big? Don't worry, buy a new car. Take this diet pill. Let a doctor rearrange your face. Take a vacation to Disney World. Buy a fashionable jacket so you can look like the model in the ad who literally got paid to pretend to have fun. None of that will permanently change anything. You can buy a new car, but you're still going to have to haul around your anxious kids. Your face can have a permanent smile, but it doesn't mean you'll be happy all the time. Take a pill that will help you shed a few pounds, but if you keep eating the same junk, your guts will keep on rotting. When you get back from Disney, your same life will be here waiting when you get back. The problem isn't that we like to pursue things. We pursue things because being human is to be restless. The problem is often what we pursue. The goal is to reorient our pursuits from material things so that our moral compasses guide us toward a way of living that will pull us upward and expand us outward. And we're all restless. My daughter reminds me of this every day. So just this last week at dinner time, she said that the next time we go to the ocean, she wants to swim with me as far out as we can. I told her that's exactly what I used to do when I was a boy with my dad. 
We would swim out so far that when you look back, the people on the beach looked like tiny little ants. And once we'd get out that far, we'd hold hands, and together we'd float on our backs as the waves rolled us in. My wife was sitting across from me at the dinner table, and she was violently shaking her head no and trying desperately to redirect the conversation, but it was too late. I promised my daughter that I would swim with her as far out as she wanted to go. How else will she learn that the ocean goes from warm to cool to cold once you get so far out? James Smith likes to say that human beings are like existential sharks. We're in constant movement while we're alive in search of what's next. And as Augustine observed all those years ago, we need to be careful about what we pursue. And the faith we practice understands this. It also understands that we're too often guided, as Havel wrote, by selfish pursuits and material wants. This is why our spiritual ancestors said we need to define the ends before we name the means. We need to know where we're headed before we set off on the journey. I want to encourage you to think of this as calibrating your heart's GPS. The best institutions we've created understand that everyone needs a good moral GPS because there will be a lot of billboards along the highways of your lives that will try and get us into a new car or diet or jacket or love affair or whatever. Just consider the institution of marriage as a moral GPS. In front of our family and friends before God and before we eat too much cake and drink too much, we pledge to love another soul as long as we're alive. We pledge honesty and truth. We pledge to stay by their side when they get sick and as they die. And they pledge that to us. It's this creed, this pledge, that should guide our living in marriage. If you leave the path of your marriage and ignore the GPS's warning to get back on route, what you risk is you risk getting to your destination too late. You risk getting lost or worse. Take the church as another example of a moral GPS. We gather weekly with our spiritual sisters and brothers. We sing hymns and pray ancient words that have been spoken by millions who have gone before. And what do those ancient prayers and hymns say? They ask us to admit in the presence of friends and maybe even an enemy or two that we are prone to mistakes, that we're often selfish. To use some old-fashioned religious language, we repent. We admit our limitations and we admit that we're weak. But then before we leave, we, we recommit each Sunday to go forth from this holy moment to live as best we can as disciples of the faith that asks us to be better than we are. It calls us to live and bear the fruits of the Spirit, to be peaceful and kind, to sow goodness, be composed, to be faithful and gentle. It's these virtues that must be habituated if you don't practice patience, you'll end up grumpy and anxious. If you don't practice goodness, you'll end up doing damage to yourself and others. If you don't ask for and offer forgiveness, you'll be a self-righteous jerk. Conditioning our moral muscles is much like acquiring a new skill. 
It's never enough to just read and pray and meditate on it. You have to practice it. And this brings us right back to Augustine. We are what we love because we live for what we want. To be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. The question isn't whether you will love something. The question is what you will love. So if you love your family, make them a habit. If you love your spouse, make them a habit. If you love gentleness, make it a habit. So too with kindness and faithfulness. If you want to start narrowing the gap between what you know and what you do, then start doing. If selfless love is what you want, then you have to set your sights on it, and then you have to start living it. Above all, guard your hearts, for everything you do flows from it. All of us are headed somewhere. The question is, where are you going, and what do you want to do when you get there? Amen. Our closing hymn is My Life Flows On an Endless Song.
Brendock Lovely wrote, Let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope, for we are now keepers of the dream. Dear friends, listeners, and members, it is your generosity that makes the mission and vision of the First Universalist Unitarian Church possible. I want to encourage you to stop by the website to check out one of the many ways you can make a one-time or sustaining gift to this church. I want to thank you in advance and invite you now to join us in singing our doxology. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Joy within.